Shambhala Audio presents The Art of War, Session 2. The Art of War, original text with commentary by the Denma Translation Group. Appraisals Sun Tzu said, The military is a great matter of the state. It is the ground of death and life, the Tao of survival or extinction. One cannot but examine it. The military provides protection. Although the Sun Tzu arose in relation to the political state, its logic applies to every form of life, for the function of protection is crucial to them all. Protection means respecting one's integrity through either warding off or extending outward, through defending or conquering. It may entail conflict. Regardless of whether we find these functions pleasant, we must look into them. And so base it in the five. Compare by means of the appraisals. Thus seek out its nature. Addressed to the ruler, this chapter discusses the five factors and seven appraisals by which one can assess the military. The first is Tao, the second is heaven, the third is earth, the fourth is the general, the fifth is method. The five are the well-known triad of heaven, earth, and humanity, flanked by Tao and method. Thus, the Sun Tzu announces its engagement with the major elements of warring states' thought, and at the same time, its application beyond the field of military action. These five are a whole, inseparable in forming the basis of the military. Tao is what causes the people to have the same purpose as their superior. Thus they can die with him, live with him, and not deceive him. Tao is a roadway, a path, the way something works, and equally a recommended course of action, the way something should be done. As a verb, it means to lead, and thus leadership. All these meanings are present here. The word translated causes is also the common term for a military order. Here it indicates the way in which leader and led become of a single mind, this unity cannot be imposed from without. It arises when all are in tune with the larger order, the Tao, the way things work. And not deceive him. The standard texts conclude this line with some variant of and not be anxious. The bamboo text is much stronger since this passage concerns the unity of purpose even to death among one's troops. It matters less if they are afraid than if they conceal their state of mind. Heaven is yin and yang, cold and hot, the order of the seasons. Going with it, going against it, this is military victory. The second line appears only in the bamboo text. Heaven is not merely the sky or weather. It also represents larger patterns in the universe. Going with it, going against it, refers to compliance with these processes, which leads to victory. 
This need not be interpreted as external influence, but rather as the general's ability to align his actions with the larger patterns, thereby commanding coincidence. Earth is high and low, broad and narrow, far and near, steep and level, death and life. Just as heaven manifests in many forms, the earth takes varied shapes. These terrains have crucial implications for the military, offering death or life. But earth need not be considered only as physical forms of terrain. It is also the ground of any situation, its practical limitations and opportunities. The general is knowledge, trustworthiness, courage, and strictness. The standard text includes the definitive Confucian virtue ren, or humaneness, in this list. That term was apparently added by a later editor who hoped to portray the Sun Tzu general as a member of Confucian civil society. The general is the principle of leadership, that which brings together all the five. His first quality is his knowledge. He is the central figure of the Sun Tzu. He is also anyone who would seek to understand this wisdom. Method is ordering divisions, the Tao of ranking and principle supply. Method originally referred to something that could be copied, like a small clay model used in the building of a house. From this it came to mean standard forms of measurement, such as a court dipper, which will always hold the same volume. More generally, it indicated any set of standards and, eventually, the way things could be properly done. The Chinese title of the text is Sun Tzu's Military Methods. Here, methods are the means by which the general structures large entities and repeatable functions within the military. They give coherence, predictability, and strength. As for all these five, no general has not heard of them. Knowing them, one is victorious. Not knowing them, one is not victorious. This is the first occurrence in the text of the crucial link between knowledge and victory. It is not enough to have heard of these five. One must know them from the inside. They are the basis of every situation. Fully understood and integrated, they lead to victory. And so compare by means of the appraisals. Thus seek out its nature. The appraisals are seven ways to determine the state of the military. Perhaps the Sun Tzu once began with this section, since these two lines appear twice, once here and once near the start of the chapter. Ask, which ruler has Tao? Which general has ability? Which attains heaven and earth? Which implements method and orders? Whose military and multitudes are strong? Whose officers and soldiers are trained? Whose rewards and punishments are clear? By these I know victory and defeat. Whereas the five address the foundations of all action, the appraisals are focused more exclusively on military matters. They offer seven bases of comparison between oneself and other. 
Dao is most important, followed by the general. Absolute standards are unnecessary. The general seeks knowledge by contrasting various qualities, since strength and weakness, self and other, are relative. Thus he knows victory. The general heeds my appraisals. Employ him, and he is certainly victorious. Retain him. The general does not heed my appraisals. Employ him, and he is certainly defeated. Remove him. Here the Sun Tzu addresses the ruler. The sovereign and his general must be synchronized. The sovereign manifests the vision. The general appraises conditions, determining how that vision can be carried out. Joined together, this makes victory. Having appraised the advantages, heed them. Then make them into sure, to aid with the external. Sure is governing the balance according to the advantages. The opening sections of this chapter have shown two ways of assessing the military, using the five and the appraisals. Now it is time to apply that knowledge to external matters. The key means is sure, the power inherent in a situation. Through comparisons we learn where relative advantage lies. We can thus act to bring about a favorable disposition, or sure. The sure of any particular situation is constantly changing as conditions shift. It is as if we were placing weights along a beam whose balance point is always in motion. From knowledge gained through the appraisals, the fulcrum is more readily found. The military is a Tao of deception. Thus, when able, manifest inability. When active, manifest inactivity. When near, manifest as far. When far, manifest as near. Thus, when he seeks advantage, lure him. When he is in chaos, take him. When he is substantial, prepare against him. When he is strong, avoid him. When he is wrathful, harass him. Attack where he is unprepared. Emerge where he does not expect it. Four of these lines are in four-word rhymed couplets, the diction of China's oldest poetry and a common feature of warring states' texts. The following three lines appear in the standard but not the bamboo text. When he is humble, make him proud. When he is at ease, make him labor. When he is in kinship, separate him. Deception is a means to become formless, invisible, unimaginable, or to appear as somewhere or something one is not. If we are not discernible to the enemy, they cannot prepare against us. If they cannot tell where we are, we could arise anywhere. Knowing the enemy's tendencies and momentum, it becomes simple to lure them, take them, or prepare against them. If they are occupied with responding to our initiatives, they become unable to mount their own. These are the victories of the military lineage. They cannot be transmitted in advance. Victories depend on sure, whose configuration is never constant. The general must recognize a momentary advantage, 
capturing victory as it arises. These victories cannot be set aside for future use, nor can they be taught. Now in the rod counting at court before battle, one is victorious who gets many counting rods. In the rod counting at court before battle, one is not victorious who gets few counting rods. Many counting rods is victorious over few counting rods. How much more so over no counting rods? By these means I observe them. Victory and defeat are apparent. We know little about this calculation. Some historians presume it was done on the basis of the seven appraisals, with strong positions receiving rods or tallies, but this is only speculation. Other contemporaneous texts speak of rod counting in the royal court or temple. In those instances, it may have been a form of divination, though the Sun Tzu is explicit that foreknowledge cannot be obtained in this way. From knowledge gained through the appraisals, one can know victory. But the particular means by which victory will be attained depend on the general skill in battle. Though victory may be known in advance, the ever-changing sure of battle exist only in the moment. Doing Battle Sun Tzu said, In sum, the method of employing the military. With one thousand fast chariots, one thousand leather-covered chariots, and one hundred thousand armored troops to be provisioned over one thousand li, then expenses of outer and inner, stipends of foreign advisers, materials for glue and lacquer, and contributions for chariots and armor, are one thousand gold pieces a day. Only after this are one hundred thousand soldiers raised. Mounting an army requires enormous resources. These expenses are unavoidable if you seek to do battle. Calculations here are not simply financial. The general is concerned with economy in its largest sense. This includes the complex balance of forces in which every aspect of the state including social and moral life, is affected. When one employs battle, if victory takes long, it blunts the military and grinds down its sharpness. Attacking walled cities, one's strength is diminished. If soldiers are long in the field, the state's resources are insufficient. Now if one blunts the military, grinds down its sharpness, diminishes its strength and exhausts its goods, then the feudal lords ride one's distress and rise up. Even one who is wise cannot make good the aftermath. Thus in the military, one has heard of foolish speed, but has not observed skillful prolonging. And there has never been a military prolonging that has brought advantage to the state. The feudal lords were rulers of the many states of North China. In the Sun Tzu, they are portrayed as unreliable allies who will swiftly transform into opportunistic enemies. The initial expense of bringing an army to battle is huge, and prolongation only magnifies it. Then your diminished resources create a new vulnerability, 
nothing can protect you from this. If victory cannot be quickly attained, it is destructive to attempt it. The conventional use of force demands concerted effort. That grinds down the enemy, but it also blunts your own sharpness. This is prolongation, in which one mistakes the intensity of engagement for the path to victory. Although speed in battle can be misapplied, it is difficult for prolongation to bring advantage. And so one who does not thoroughly know the harm from employing the military cannot thoroughly know the advantage from employing the military. The use of military force is always destructive to oneself as well as to the other. The general who ignores this will not know how to use the army to advantage, nor the particular advantages in using an army at all. He must be aware of every way that things can go wrong. The skillful general recognizes how harm can bring advantage, how the enemy's advantage may not bring him harm, how easily these can invert. By seeing the interdependence of advantage and harm, self and other, he moves to victory. One skill that employing the military does not have a second registering of conscripts nor a third loading of grain. One takes equipment from the state and relies on grain from the enemy. Thus, the army's food can be made sufficient. When doing battle, avoid the extra burden of creating, transporting, maintaining, and consuming your own wealth. Instead, take advantage of goods that are already at hand. Thus, the enemy's resources are used to defeat them. A state's impoverishment from its soldiers. When they are distant, there is distant transport. When they are distant and there is distant transport, the hundred clans are impoverished. When soldiers are near, things sell dearly. When things sell dearly, wealth is exhausted. When wealth is exhausted, people are hard-pressed by local taxes. Diminished strength in the heartland, emptiness in the households. Of the hundred clans' resources, six-tenths is gone. Of the ruling family's resources, broken chariots, worn-out horses, armor, helmets, arrows, crossbows, halberds, shields, spears, pavises, heavy ox-drawn wagons, seven-tenths is gone. Thus the wise general looks to the enemy for food. One bushel of enemy food equals twenty bushels of mine. One bale of fodder equals twenty bales of mine. The impoverishment of battle reaches to every part of the economy. It not only affects material goods, but also frays the social fabric. The general does not burden the state because he obtains his food and supplies from the enemy. And so killing the enemy is a matter of wrath. Taking the enemy's goods is a matter of advantage. Finding the right motivation, it is easy to get your troops either to kill or to take. But the economy of battle values the good use of both lives and material resources. Living off the enemy brings one closer to victory. And so in chariot battles. When more than ten chariots are captured, 
Reward him who first captures one. Then change their flags and pennants. When the chariots are mixed together, ride them. Supply the captives and care for them. This is what is meant by victorious over the enemy and so increasing one's strength. Enemy equipment can be captured and turned against them. Give a chariot to the first person to take one in battle, fit it with your insignia, and integrate it into your forces. But food and equipment are not the only resources the general obtains from the enemy. He must win over their people as well. His strength increases when he brings the enemy around to the larger perspective. And so the military values victory. It does not value prolonging. This passage is an initial summary of the chapter. Victory means taking whole. Battle is costly. When prolonged, it is devastating to all. If battle is necessary, it must be quick. And so the general who knows the military is the people's fate star, the ruler of the state's security and danger. The fate star controls the time of death. This is a final summation of the chapter. Knowledge of the military shows the general how to use the enemy's resources, avoid prolongation, and find victory. That knowledge also gives him power to preserve or destroy the state. This is the largest economy, which extends far past battle. It ranges from natural principles in the heavens to the cost of glue, lacquer, and grain. Strategy of Attack Sun Tzu said, In sum, the method of employing the military, taking a state hole is superior, destroying it is inferior to this. Taking an army hole is superior, destroying it is inferior to this. Taking a battalion hole is superior, destroying it is inferior to this. Taking a company hole is superior, Destroying it is inferior to this. Taking a squad hole is superior. Destroying it is inferior to this. Therefore, 100 victories in 100 battles is not the most skillful. Subduing the other's military without battle is the most skillful. The skillful general conquers the enemy without destroying them. Taking whole leaves them intact, transforms them it builds upon itself. By contrast, 100 victories places battle at the center, ignoring the fact that conflict may lead to further conflict. This principle extends from the greatest to the smallest. This is not an argument against the use of force. Instead, it sees battle in the context of victory. And so the superior military cuts down strategy. Its inferior cuts down alliances. Its inferior cuts down the military. The worst attacks wall cities. The approach of taking whole first targets enemy strategy, undoing the coherence of their plan. This battle is one in the mind. 
Next best is to cut down the enemy's alliances, the connections that hold their world together. Next, it may be skillful to engage the enemy's forces in conventional military fashion. Brute assault is the least effective. This military is the protector of the state's integrity, seeking victory rather than conquest. The method of attacking wall cities. Ready the siege towers and armored vehicles. This is completed after three months. Pile up the earthworks. This also takes three months. If the general is not victorious over his anger and sets them swarming like ants, one-third of the officers and soldiers are killed and the walled city not uprooted. This is the calamity of attack. Strategy manuals sometimes provide detailed instruction on the methods of siege. Here instead we see the wastefulness of blunt aggression, which consumes time, money, property, and lives. Furthermore, attacking the civilian homes of the enemy creates conditions that diminish any chance of taking whole. Aggression not only devastates enemy resources, it may also overcome the general, cloud his judgment, and draw him further into destruction and loss. And so one skilled at employing the military subdues the other's military but does not do battle, uproots the other's walled city but does not attack, destroys the other's state but does not prolong. One must take it whole when contending for all under heaven. Thus the military is not blunted and advantage can be whole. This is the method of the strategy of attack. The first four lines summarize the chapter so far. Only with the strategy of taking whole will the general find complete victory. This means assuming the perspective of the whole at the outset of the campaign. Thus you keep your military intact, preserving both the advantage that leads to victory and the advantage that comes from victory. At times you may have to destroy the enemy's state. If so, do it quickly. There is no simple rule on this. And so the method of employing the military, when ten to one surround them, when five to one attack them, when two to one do battle with them, when matched then divide them, when fewer then defend against them, when inadequate then avoid them. Thus a small enemy's tenacity is a large enemy's catch. The standard text says, When two to one, then divide them. When matched, then be able to battle them. This is inconsistent with the Sun Tzu's logic, and following certain early texts, we have inverted these two phrases. Though it is better to take whole and avoid conflict, sometimes battle is necessary. In each case, the best strategy will arise from your particular circumstances. Assess the enemy's strength relative to your own, and respond accordingly. Attachment to any strategy, however good, leads to defeat. The general may flee from battle if the larger victory demands it. Now the general is the safeguard of the state. If the safeguard is complete, the state is surely strong. If the safeguard is flawed, the state is surely weak. Here the state is the final good, the entity whose integrity must be maintained. The general is its protector. 
Only when he is fully accomplished does he ensure its welfare. And so the sovereign brings adversity to the army in three ways. Not knowing the army is unable to advance, yet ordering an advance. Not knowing the army is unable to retreat, yet ordering a retreat. This is what is meant by hobbling the army. Not knowing affairs within the three armies, yet controlling the governance of the three armies. Then the army's officers are confused. Not knowing the three armies' balance, yet controlling appointments in the three armies, then the army's officers are distrustful. Once the three armies are confused and distrustful, troubles from the feudal lords intensify. This is what is meant by an army in chaos leads to victory. The three armies refer to divisions of center, left, and right within the larger body of troops. They indicate all the forces of the state. The sovereign calls upon the general to act. But skillful action depends on the authority that comes from knowledge. Knowledge arises from the situation at hand. Lacking this knowledge, a sovereign who interferes in military activities creates chaos. An army in chaos leads to victory for the enemy. And so knowing victory is fivefold. Knowing when one can and cannot do battle is victory. Knowing the use of the many and the few is victory. Superior and inferior desiring the same is victory. Being prepared and awaiting the unprepared is victory. The general being capable and the ruler not interfering is victory. These five are a Tao of knowing victory. Knowing victory means being able to nurture those conditions that determine victory. It depends on the mastery of many disciplines, the moment of pulling the trigger, the use of varied troop strength, morale, waiting, and the proper relations between general and ruler. These five must become a single, inexhaustible way to victory. And so in the military, knowing the other and knowing oneself, in one hundred battles, no danger. Not knowing the other and knowing oneself, one victory for one loss. Not knowing the other and not knowing oneself, in every battle, certain defeat. Knowledge protects one from danger. The general must know both self and other, conditions here and conditions there. This requires an ability to penetrate all aspects of the world. Victory comes from taking whole. It includes both self and other in a single vision. Sun Tzu said, Of old the skilled first made themselves invincible to await the enemy's vincibility. Invincibility lies in oneself. Vincibility lies in the enemy. Thus the skilled can make themselves invincible. They cannot cause the enemy's vincibility. Thus it is said, Victory can be known. It cannot be made. Elsewhere, the Sun Tzu gives explicit advice about making victory. 
Here, though, it emphasizes one's ground of action, preparing the conditions of invincibility within one's own sphere. This is not yet victory. One must wait for the enemy's vincibility to arise. Skill is knowing that moment. Invincibility is defense. Vincibility is attack. Defend and one has a surplus. Attack and one is insufficient. The standard text says, Attack when you have a surplus. Defend when you are insufficient. This logic maintains the convention of gaining victory through attack. The bamboo text points to the vulnerability of attack and the subtle power of defense. Of old, those skilled at defense hid below the nine earths and moved above the nine heavens. Thus they could preserve themselves and be all victorious. Here the standard text has, One skilled at defense hides below the nine earths. One skilled at attack moves above the nine heavens. This obscures the more powerful message of the bamboo text, which shows instead a defense not based in conflict. In the best defense, one goes outside the range of enemy insight, becoming ungraspable and thus unbeatable. Victory need not be achieved by will or devastation. The all-victorious general resides beyond defeat. In seeing victory, not going beyond what everyone knows is not skilled. Victory in battle that all under heaven call skilled is not skilled. Thus, lifting an autumn hair does not mean great strength. Seeing the sun and the moon does not mean a clear eye. Hearing thunder does not mean a keen ear. So-called skill is to be victorious over the easily defeated. Thus, the battles of the skilled are without extraordinary victory, without reputation for wisdom, and without merit for courage. According to Chinese lore, the downy coats of birds and animals are especially fine at the onset of fall. The standard text says, What is meant by skill is to be victorious over the easily defeated. It implies that the skilled general fights only those he can readily beat, and thus develops no reputation for greatness. The bamboo text comes to the same conclusion, but for different reasons. What most people can see is not skill. True skill is both invisible to ordinary people and achieves more than they can envision. Thus, the general's victories are unknown. And so one's victories are without error. Being without error, what one arranges is necessarily victorious since one is victorious over the defeated. One skilled at battle takes a stand in the ground of no defeat and so does not lose the enemy's defeat. Therefore, the victorious military is first victorious and after that does battle. The defeated military first does battle, and after that seeks victory. For the skilled general, victory is attained before the battle is joined. Abiding in his invincibility, he awaits the moment at which he can seize the enemy's vincibility. A military that rushes to the fight, hoping for victory, assumes the ground of defeat. And so one who is skilled cultivates Tao and preserves method. 
Thus one can be the measure of victory and defeat. Tao is the way things are, the way things go of their own accord, the natural momentum. Method is ordering human actions in ways that are in accord with Tao. The general assumes this power when he is tuned into the larger perspective, thus becoming the governor of victory and defeat. As for method, first, measure length. Second, measure volume. Third, count. Fourth, weigh. The fifth is victory. Earth gives birth to length. Length gives birth to volume. Volume gives birth to counting. Counting gives birth to weighing. Weighing gives birth to victory. Method gives rise to victory because it is in direct contact with the phenomenal world. Here that is done through calculations. First, measure the linear, the two-dimensional. Second, measure volume, the three-dimensional. Third, determine how many fill that space. Fourth, weigh the potentials. The fifth is victory. Because the world is fully interconnected, each calculation is linked necessarily to its successor. Conflict is made up of small details. If one can see the depth and subtlety of measurable things, then victory is not mysterious. A victorious military is like weighing a hundredweight against a grain. A defeated military is like weighing a grain against a hundredweight. One who weighs victory sets the people to battle, like releasing a massed water into a gorge one thousand ren deep. This is form. Because you have taken the measure of things, you know their true weight. Victory is then arranging the balance to create preponderance. Like the release of water down a steep ravine, this is sure. Sure. Ordering the many is like ordering the few. It is division and counting. Fighting the many is like fighting the few. It is form and name. The Chinese character for ordering suggests regulating or properly arranging. When you give order to the many, when the large is divided into the small, working with the many becomes like working with the few. When you form troops into clearly named divisions, fighting with the many is no different from fighting with the few. The same principles apply, activated by the same gestures. As well, interacting with the small, you establish connections that accumulate power as you build to the large. Thus you command the vastness by working with the manageable and immediate, that which is right in front of you. This is effective on all levels of command. The multitude of the three armies can be made to meet all enemies without defeat. It is the extraordinary and the orthodox. The orthodox translates the Chinese word zheng. Its original meaning, at least a thousand years before the Sun Tzu, was straight and thus correct. From these senses evolved the term to govern. 
The orthodox, then, is the right way to do things according to public measures. In social life, it would indicate conventional good form. The extraordinary is literally the strange. It has none of the political associations of the orthodox. In general, the orthodox is the familiarity of our world, the ways in which we engage reality, the way our senses normally work. It is what we and the enemy expect. For the military, it is accepted means and models. It may also include conventional strategy and tactics. The extraordinary is always surprising. It is not defined as any particular action. It is simply what the enemy does not expect. How a military comes to prevail, like throwing a grindstone against an egg, it is the empty and the solid. The military conquers through preponderance. Concentrate your force at the empty point where your enemy cannot resist. In sum, when in battle, use the orthodox to engage. Use the extraordinary to attain victory. Engage people with what they expect. It is what they are able to discern and confirms their projections. It settles them into predictable patterns of response, occupying their minds while you wait for the extraordinary moment, that which they cannot anticipate. The orthodox prepares the ground for the possibility of the extraordinary. Only through complete training in the conventions of your craft are you able to recognize subtle variations in your enemy's practice of it and respond immediately to them. The extraordinary is unanticipated, but the orthodox is not fixed either. It changes as people's perceptions grow and shift. Use of these two thus requires constant awareness of the enemy's developing state of mind. It is a contemplative exercise, not a repeatable trick. And so one skilled at giving rise to the extraordinary, as boundless as heaven and earth, as inexhaustible as the yellow river and the ocean, ending and beginning again, it is the sun and the moon, dying and then being born, it is the four seasons. The general gives rise to the extraordinary, literally gives birth to it. He does not create or assemble it. Uncreated, it is inexhaustible, like heaven and earth, like cycles of the natural world, large beyond human reach, it ends but begins again. Musical pitches do not exceed five, yet all their variations cannot be heard. Colors do not exceed five, yet all their variations cannot be seen. Tastes do not exceed five, yet all their variations cannot be tasted. The sheer of battle do not exceed the extraordinary and the orthodox, yet all their variations cannot be exhausted. The extraordinary and the orthodox circle and give birth to each other. As a circle has no beginning, who is able to exhaust it? Five pitches combine to make all music. Every amazing sight in our world derives from only five colors. Out of finite elements, an endless display emerges. In the same way, the many sure of battle are a matter only of the extraordinary and orthodox. 
Knowing this, one can discern the simple patterns that lie within the overwhelming multiplicity of phenomena. Mastering the extraordinary and orthodox, one can create sure inexhaustibly. The extraordinary and orthodox give birth to each other. They are interdependent. What is extraordinary now may soon become orthodox. An apparently orthodox action may be what your adept opponent least expects from you. Thus, the extraordinary and orthodox depend entirely on our conception of them. The rush of water to the point of tossing rocks about, this is sure. The strike of a hawk at the killing snap, this is the node. Therefore, one skilled at battle, his sure is steep, his node is short. Sure is like drawing the crossbow, the node is like pulling the trigger. Sure is the power inherent in a configuration. It does not rely solely on powerful components. As Lao Tzu says, water is the softest thing in the world, yet here it tosses rocks about. This water is powerful because it has come together in a particular conformation, cascading through the ravine. The node is that small juncture between the sections of bamboo. It indicates the abrupt moment at which something occurs, the present between past and future. It must be short. Its target is always in motion. The power of sure comes from combining these two elements. When you pull the trigger of a crossbow, its gradually accumulated energy is released all at once in one spot. Puan Puan, Huan Huan, the fight is chaotic, yet one is not subject to chaos. Hun Huan, Duan Duan, one's form is round, and one cannot be defeated. Huan Huan indicates tangled cords and the confusion of battle. Huan Duan is the word for a whole whose pieces cannot be individually identified. Roundness suggests completeness. In chaotic conditions, the usual patterns, which constitute the orthodox world, are not discernible. One order has gone, and the next has not yet arisen. Chaos thus offers continual openings to someone who can perceive a deeper order. One's form is round because all possibilities are included in it. One can respond without confusion to whatever emerges. Thus, one cannot be defeated. Chaos is born from order. Cowardice is born from bravery. Weakness is born from strength. Order and chaos are a matter of counting. Bravery and cowardice are a matter of sure. Strength and weakness are a matter of form. Counting stands for division and counting. It refers to dividing one's army into smaller, manageable groups. Placing your army in proper conditions of sure brings out its natural bravery. Form indicates troop formations and, more generally, any shaping of forces. Cowardice and bravery are two moments of a single cycle. Instead of manipulating one part of the cycle, shape the environment using counting, sure, or form, and the quality you seek readily occurs. One skilled at moving the enemy forms, and the enemy must follow, offers, and the enemy must take. 
Move them by this and await them with troops. Do not fight the enemy head on. Instead, shape their ground. This narrows the enemy's course of action, leading them where you want. They have no alternative. If your offer is made from the perspective of victory, they choose it as if it were their own idea. This is skill. And so, one skilled at battle seeks it in sure and does not demand it of people. Thus one can dispense with people and employ sure. Victory does not come from accumulating troop strength or creating heroism. Rather, bring about advantageous sure to shape the field of battle. In the defile, one person stands off one hundred. In winter, the enemy's impassable river becomes your road of ice. Relying on sure, the battle of army against army need not occur. This is the highest skill. It is victory. One who uses sure sets people to battle as if rolling trees and rocks. As for the nature of trees and rocks, when still, they are at rest. When agitated, they move. When square, they stop. When round, they go. Thus the sure of one skilled at setting people to battle is like rolling round rocks from a mountain one thousand ren high. This is sure. The mountain, like the crossbow, emphasizes the potential energy aspect of sure. Victory is not based solely on the quality of your people or their strength of will. Thus, there is no need to remake or alter them. If you know their nature, you can position them so that they become natural weapons. Thus, you take advantage of the way power arises in the world. The Solid and Empty One who takes position first at the battleground and awaits the enemy is at ease. One who takes position later at the battleground and hastens to do battle is at labor. Thus one skilled at battle summons others and is not summoned by them. How one can make the enemy arrive of their own accord, offer them advantage, how one can prevent the enemy from arriving, harm them. Thus, how one can make the enemy labor when at ease and starve when full, emerge where they must hasten. Arrive first at the place of battle, gain the initiative, and wait. You have shaped the conflict, bringing the enemy to the battlefield of your choice. Offer real or imagined advantage to move them. Threaten real or imagined harm to restrict them. Because you appear unexpectedly at a vital point, the enemy must rush to meet you. Hurried, they labor. Laboring, they are insufficient. These are mental as much as physical conditions. They divert the enemy's attention and cloud their vision. To go one thousand li without fear, go through unpeopled ground. To attack and surely take it, Attack where they do not defend. To defend and surely hold firm, defend where they will surely attack. Thus, with one skilled at attack, 
the enemy does not know where to defend. With one skilled at defense, the enemy does not know where to attack. The standard text reads, To defend and surely hold firm, defend where they will not attack. At first glance, this looks wise. You are promised a secure defense because the enemy does not attack you there. But a perfectly defended fortress that no one wishes to attack is simply irrelevant. Furthermore, the bamboo text has a stronger logic. You cannot entirely control where the enemy will attack, but if you know in advance the location of their attack, your defense can be secure. When advancing, move through open space, any ground that is unnoticed or uncontested. In attack, find the enemy's unguarded moment. In defense, knowing their objective, hold strong at the point of their attack. They will know neither where to defend nor where to attack. Subtle, subtle, to the point of formlessness. Spirit-like, spirit-like, to the point of soundlessness. Thus one can be the enemy's fate star. An ancient Chinese ode says, Heaven is soundless, odorless. The fate star controls the time of death. If you are formless and soundless, your movement and intentions are invisible to the enemy. If you synchronize your actions with natural processes, your power is predominant. To advance so one cannot be resisted, charge against the empty. To retreat so that one cannot be stopped, go so far that one cannot be reached. And so, if I wish to do battle, the enemy cannot but do battle with me. I attack what he must save. If I do not wish to do battle, I mark a line on the earth to defend it, and the enemy cannot do battle with me. I misdirect him. You reach your objective with ease if you encounter no resistance. Find the open way, that which the enemy does not defend or even notice. Your advance or attack is successful because it is directed at an unguarded target. In retreat, remove yourself beyond reach. In battle, attack the enemy's vital point. If you wish to avoid battle, cause your enemy to believe that you are invulnerable. Your confidence is so imposing that they cannot trust their own perceptions. And so the skilled general forms others, yet is without form. Hence I am concentrated, and the enemy is divided. I am concentrated, and thus one. The enemy is divided, and thus one-tenth. This is using one-tenth to strike one. You dictate the enemy's form and manifestation while remaining formless yourself. Thus you keep your focus and remain strong while they must split their strength against you. When I am few and the enemy is many, I can use the few to strike the many because those with whom I do battle are restricted. The ground on which I do battle with him cannot be known. Then the enemy's preparations are many. When his preparations are many, I battle the few. Prepare the front, and the rear has few. Prepare the left, and the right has few. Everywhere prepared, everywhere few. The few are those who prepare against others. 
the many are those who make others prepare against them. The standard texts all say, When I am many and the enemy is few, I can use the many to strike the few. The bamboo text inverts this. Though outnumbered, you still can attack. The enemy is formed by you. They must prepare against you on all sides. Thus, even your smaller force outnumbers that portion of their troops you engage. In this way, you make their many few. You are prepared for everything because your preparation is not focused on any single possibility. Knowing the battle day and knowing the battleground, one can go one thousand li and do battle. Not knowing the battle day and not knowing the battleground, the front cannot help the rear, the rear cannot help the front, the left cannot help the right, the right cannot help the left. How much more so when the far is several tens of li and the near is several li away. You attain victory even when starting from far away because you know the objective, the time and place of battle. This does not depend only on advanced knowledge. It is also determined by making others prepare against you. Lacking this knowledge, your command is in disarray. Though by my estimate the military of UA is many, how does this further victory? Thus it is said, victory can be usurped. Although the enemy is numerous, they can be kept from fighting. UA was the populous state of southeastern China, the mortal enemy of Wu, where Sun Tzu is said to have served. Victory can be usurped. The Chinese word for usurped has the sense of turned, but also of taking something that is not properly one's own. The standard text reads, Victory can be made. A later editor apparently felt the need to soften the text. Though many troops may be an asset, they do not by themselves assure success. Fewer troops with greater strategy can take a victory not apparently theirs. And so prick them and know the pattern of their movement and stillness. Form them and know the ground of death and life. Appraise them and know the plans for gain and loss. Probe them and know the places of surplus and insufficiency. True knowledge of the enemy comes from active contact, which the general initiates and conducts. He provokes them to reveal themselves, assessing the full extent of their reactions and resources. The ultimate in giving form to the military is to arrive at formlessness. When one is formless, deep spies cannot catch a glimpse and the wise cannot strategize. Your form cannot be assessed by spies or strategists because there is nothing there for them to grasp. Thus they are formed by their own projections, which is all they can discern. These projections, in turn, reveal their position to you. This is a Tao of deception. Rely on form to bring about victory over the multitude, and the multitude cannot understand. The elite all know the form by which I am victorious, but no one knows how I determine the form of victory. Do not repeat the means of victory, but respond to form from the inexhaustible.
ordinary people see the victory, but not the form by which it is achieved. The elite understand the form of victory, but not how that form arose. The general, free from fixation on particular means, responds inexhaustibly to each new situation. Now the form of the military is like water. Water in its movement avoids the high and hastens to the low. The military in its victory avoids the solid and strikes the empty. Thus water determines its movement in accordance with the earth. The military determines victory in accordance with the enemy. The military is without fixed sure and without lasting form. To be able to transform with the enemy is what is meant by spirit-like. This is the initial summary of the chapter. The essential quality of the all-victorious military is that it has no fixed form. This is its power, that it manifests in whatever way is required to attain victory, spirit-like, transforming without obstacle, without hesitation. It takes shape in response to what is given, the enemy, their disposition, the terrain, any aspect of battle. Of the five phases, none is the lasting victor. Of the four seasons, none has constant rank. The sun shines short and long. The moon dies and lives. In the conquest cycle of the five phases, water overcomes fire, which in turn overcomes wood, which overcomes metal, which overcomes earth, which overcomes water. The phenomenal world is in constant transformation, yet there are patterns within it. Holding to any single point loses the power of the larger pattern. Spirit-like essentials. This final summation is not present in any of the standard texts. The Army Contending Sun Tzu said, in sum, the method of employing the military. The general receives the command from the sovereign, joins with the army, gathers the multitude, organizes them, and encamps. Nothing is more difficult than an army contending. The chain of command is initiated only by the sovereign. The general organizes the army and then takes it into the field. Nothing is more difficult than contending, because everything is at stake, and so much remains unpredictable. The difficulty for a contending army is to make the circuitous direct, and to make the adverse advantageous. Thus make their road circuitous, and lure them with advantage. Setting out later than others, and arriving sooner, is knowing the appraisals of circuitous and direct. The goal for a contending army is to transform the circuitous and direct. Because the general is not limited by how things are defined for him, he can reverse conditions in various ways, apparently turning logic on its head. He makes the adverse advantageous, not by overcoming obstacles, but by giving those difficulties to the enemy, making their road circuitous. 
he offers advantage to confound their perceptions, changing what is easy into what is difficult. Thus, he is able to invert space and time, setting out after and arriving before. In these ways, he attacks the basic strategy of the enemy. A contending army brings advantage. A contending army brings danger. Contending for advantage with an entire army, one will not get there. Contending for advantage with a reduced army, one's baggage train is diminished. Therefore, rolling up one's armor, hastening after advantage day and night without camping, continually marching at the double for one hundred li and then contending for advantage, the commander of the three armies is captured. The strong ones sooner, the worn-out ones later, and one in ten arrives. Going fifty li and contending for advantage, the ranking general falls. By this method, half arrive. Going thirty li and contending for advantage, two-thirds arrive. Therefore, an army without a baggage train is lost, without grain and food is lost, without supplies is lost. Contending is a major function of the military. It cannot be avoided. But rushing to seize advantage on another's ground brings loss of every kind. Keep the army gathered, attending to the basic needs of your troops. Remain with the advantage your current circumstances offer. Therefore, not knowing the strategies of the feudal lords, one cannot ally with them, not knowing the form of mountains and forests, defiles and gorges, marshes and swamps, one cannot move the army. Not employing local guides, one cannot obtain the advantage of the ground. Without knowledge, one cannot act skillfully. Knowledge must come from every available source and extend to all aspects of the enemy. And so the military is based on guile, acts due to advantage, transforms by dividing and joining. The all-victorious military is founded in deception, motivated by victory, and endlessly transforming. These are the basic elements of the general's knowledge. And so, swift like the wind, slow like the forest, raiding and plundering like fire, not moving like a mountain, difficult to know like yin, moving like thunder. Yin is the mate of yang. It is dark, quiet, hidden. Six ways of moving, six ways of being and of changing. These powers of the natural world are the powers of the skillful general, of the victorious military. Who can resist the wind or move a mountain? When plundering the countryside, divide the multitude. When expanding territory, divide the advantage. Weigh it and act. Disperse your troops and distribute the goods among them. By dividing captured resources, one strengthens loyalties. As these resources are balanced throughout one's realm, they become less susceptible to recapture. Thus, your actions overlook immediate advantage so as to further victory. One who knows in advance the Tao of the circuitous and direct is victorious. This is the method of the army contending. 
The standard text speaks of knowing the appraisals of the circuitous and direct. Here we follow the bamboo text, which speaks instead of knowing their Tao. Contending is, finally, a matter of the circuitous and direct. The general knows these in advance, though it is not primarily through information on marshes and swamps or the intent of the feudal lords. Rather, it is through an understanding of how things transform and invert, the adverse and advantageous, the circuitous and direct. These are a Tao of the contending army. Therefore, the governance of the army says, because they could not hear each other, they made drums and bells. Because they could not see each other, they made flags and pennants. Therefore, in day battle, use more flags and pennants. In night battle, use more drums and bells. Drums and bells, flags and pennants are the means by which one unifies the eyes and ears of the people. Once the people have been tightly unified, the brave have no chance to advance alone, the cowardly have no chance to retreat alone. This is the method of employing the many. The governance of the army is an otherwise unknown military text. Signals are a solution to military communication in the chaos of movement and battle, in the day or night. Just as signs and symbols foster the coherence of a culture, signals bring unity to the military. They equalize disparities of bravery or cowardice and prevent extreme cases of independent action, even under intense conditions of battle. Thus, the army becomes the focused expression of its leader's strategy. And so the chi of the three armies can be seized. The heart-mind of the commander can be seized. Therefore, morning chi is sharp, midday chi is lazy, evening chi is spent. Thus, one skilled at employing the military avoids their sharp chi and strikes their lazy and spent chi. This is ordering chi. Chi is the breath, the life force. The day, the seasons, the enemy's chi, all are cycles. The general does not seek to overcome these nor regulate them, but to know their nature. Thus he can seize the opportunities they offer. This is ordering chi. Use order to await chaos. Use stillness to await clamor. This is ordering the heart-mind. The Chinese character for ordering has the basic sense of regulating or arranging, as well as connotations of ruling. You order the heart-mind by remaining in the stillness and order that are already present at the center of all chaos and clamor. Use the near to await the far. Use ease to await labor. Use fullness to await hunger. This is ordering strength. It is not necessary to exercise your strength. Instead, rest in your sufficiency. Do not engage well-ordered penance. Do not strike imposing formations. This is ordering transformation. Transformation is a matter of dividing or joining your troops and those of the enemy. You order transformation by holding your seat. 
In sum, you order by not doing, particularly when the situation is too strong to alter in any other way. Avoid the enemy's sharp chi. Wait in stillness. Rest in your completeness. Do not go against their plenitude. Then you strike their spent or lazy chi. This is ordering. And so the method of employing the military. Do not face them when they are on a high hill. Do not go against them with their back to a mound. Do not pursue them when they feign defeat. Leave a way out for surrounded soldiers. Do not block soldiers returning home. This is the method of employing the many. The standard text has these lines in different order and contains as well the following. Do not attack sharp troops. Do not eat soldier bait. Do not press exhausted invaders. In many simple configurations, the enemy harbors a great strength. Here it is the kind of sure the general himself seeks to develop. Back to a mound, troops energized with desperation. Rather than developing still more powerful countermeasures, he cedes ground, allowing sure advantageous to the enemy to spend itself harmlessly. At the right moment, not acting is the most skillful action. 465 This number appears at the end of the bamboo strip, separated by two horizontal marks from the sentence, This is the method of employing the many. It records the total number of characters in the chapter, perhaps for verification against the original being copied, perhaps for scribal payment. Other chapters probably had similar indications, but those are not preserved. 